Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hello. All right. So for today's episode, we are going to discuss one of the favorite considerations of the internist, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or SBP. So the spontaneous in SBP may suggest this infection of acidic fluid just pops up spontaneously. Tony, the question that you wanted to talk about today is why exactly this happens. So start us off. What is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? Why does it happen? Yeah, so the spontaneous in SBP refers to the fact that it's not secondary to things like a perforated bowel, things that can be repaired surgically. And I was sort of, I heard throughout residency and I taught all through residency in my early career that the main event in SBP was that the bacteria translocate from the gut into the ascites. They literally just moved right across the bowel wall. And I kind of always envisioned it as being the colon. And that was it. That was the entirety of what happened in SBP. And I certainly have believed the same thing and just assumed it and was taught it and have taught it to others. And are you suggesting that that is not the way that this SPP thing goes down? Yes and no. So it is definitely true that bacteria translocate. Um, They do move at least partially through the bowel wall in patients with uh, cirrhosis, but they don't typically go directly into the ascites. There happens to be a lot more to the whole process of getting the bacteria from the gut into the acidic fluid. Yeah, I've definitely been in camp like translocate and (laughs) forget about it. Like, oh yeah, of course, gut translocation. Okay, so (laughs) where should we start in explaining how this apparently actually happens and redefining my entire understanding? So maybe I'll just offer very briefly the more expansive version of the mechanism and then maybe cover some of these in a little bit more detail. So there are probably three main things that happen in cirrhosis that lead to uh, SPP. One is intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Two is increased intestinal permeability. And three is altered immunity. So the first part of that was intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Are you saying that that's what is occurring? And if so, in cirrhosis, why would there be increased bacterial overgrowth, period? Uh, Yeah, I am absolutely uh, saying that. So bacteria definitely appear to overgrow in cirrhosis. And it's been observed in rat models of cirrhosis, and it's observed in in humans who have cirrhosis. And interestingly, as the child pew score increases, the amount of bacterial overgrowth that you see worsens. So in one study, bacterial overgrowth was measured using a breath test after ingestion of glucose. And the test was positive in 30% of patients with cirrhosis and in none of the controls. And so the question then becomes like, why? What is it about cirrhosis that incre- leads to the intestinal bacterial overgrowth? From the study I just mentioned, uh, one observation that the authors made was that the overgrowth was much more frequent in patients with ascites than in patients who did not have ascites. Uh, in fact, all but one of the cases of bacterial overgrowth occurred in patients with ascites. And so in this study, study, the authors speculate that the ascites might promote some form of intestinal stasis, which then may favor abnormal bacterial proliferation. And there are certainly other studies independent of this one that show that gut motility is altered in cirrhosis. And it's, I don't know that it's clear, it certainly wasn't clear in the reading that I did, whether or not this is related to an either enteric or autonomic nervous system dysfunction or related to elevated levels of glucagon, which definitely is seen in cirrhosis. Like the exact mechanism isn't clear, 
but altered motility seems to be one of the reasons why bacteria tend to overgrow. But there are others. So, you know, another example is that uh, patients with cirrhosis seem to have decreased intestinal IgA, and that may also predispose to bacterial overgrowth. Any of it related to like the meds that we give? So PPIs come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, PPIs and other acid suppressive medications probably increase the risk of bacterial overgrowth and predispose to SVP. And the connection with SVP isn't totally consistent in every study, but one meta-analysis does support the link, and the odds ratio in that study was 3.2, which, you know, isn't something to sniff at. Okay, so we don't quite know exactly why patients with cirrhosis have intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We've got like several extremely interesting potential episodes worth of physiologic explanations for it. Um, And we know that PPIs are associated with sort of bacterial overgrowth. Other than PPIs, is there anything that's like effective at decreasing the bacterial overgrowth? Yeah, so nor decreasing SBP. Yeah, so so norfloxacin and other um, uh, antibiotics, and then medications like pentoxyphylline, these are shown or have been shown to reduce bacterial overgrowth. And unsurprisingly, if there's a connection between that and SBP, um, there are studies also showing that they reduce themselves the risk of SBP. I'm pentoxyphylline that fact away <laughs> for later. So, so we've so we've established that patients with cirrhosis do appear to have intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And you said that the second mes- mechanism was increased intestinal permeability. But I thought we said they're not actually getting across the bowel. So like what's what's going on there? Yeah. So they, they may not getting be getting like fully all the way into the ascites, but they definitely can penetrate the bowel wall a little bit because of this increased permeability. And so, for example, one study found that uh, there was increased intestinal permeability in 42% of patients with cirrhosis versus just 4% of controls. And just as was shown with intestinal bacterial overgrowth, as the child pew score increased, the permeability increased. So it suggests that the severity of the cirrhosis um, plays a role. And the increased permeability, at least in part, appears to be related to a disruption in the intercellular tight junctions. Why cirrhosis does that, I don't know. But you know, really, regardless of that, the mechanism, and, and if it's related to the tight junctions, how cirrhosis does that, I think it's pretty clear that the bacteria can make their way, if it's not fully across the bowel wall, they make their way sort of into the bacterial wall at least a little bit. But So you mentioned at the top that it is not directly into the ascites, which is honestly how I always imagined it. Are are they not? Are they going directly into the ascites or elsewhere in the bowel wall? Yeah. So yeah, I feel like I've I've danced around this a little bit, and so I you know, gotta head lead this or answer this question head on. So I and I think all three of us had heard that the translocation was fully from bowel into the ascites, and that that may happen, but I don't think that's the main mechanism. Instead, the bacteria when they are able to get through the epithelium of the intestinal wall. Um, they first translocate to mesenteric lymph nodes. Um, And so there's this really cool study, and we'll show pictures of this um, in the show notes, where they orally administered to um, cirrhotic rats a green fluorescent protein that was labeled onto E. coli. And then they looked at where they found this fluorescent bacteria, and like the plates are just like shooting up this green fluorescence. And they found a tremendous amount of it in the mesenteric lymph nodes, 
and unsurprisingly, ultimately in the ascites. And so this is one study that demonstrates that you know, these mesenteric lymph nodes are an intermediary between the bowel and the ultimate uh, peritoneal fluid. And just as we've seen with the first two things, translocation to these mesenteric lymph nodes gets worse or gets more frequent as the severity of cirrhosis worsens. And you know, when, you, when you look at some of these studies, the bacteria that grow in these mesenteric lymph nodes are exactly the, the bacteria that you find in the bowel. And in many of these studies, if you look at the amount of bacteria that you find, it's the greatest in the cecum or the bowel. Second is the mesenteric lymph nodes. And then finally, the least amount is in the ascites. Again, suggesting that it's this, the road trip is it, bowel, mesenteric lymph node, maybe something else, and then ascites. So you've taken this very, what I think we all thought was a very simple, straightforward concept, bacteria translocate from gut directly across the bowel wall into the ascites and infect it that way, leading to SBP. You've said that's not the case. You've made it more a little bit more complicated in saying that they're taking this sort of looped uh, route to the lymph node and then into the ascites. Is that it? Are we done? Have we adequately explained this? No. No, we haven't. <laughs> there's there's one more place that they probably go, and that's the blood. I mean, they get they get into the lymphatics, and then the lymphatics like you know shuttle into to the blood. And so, you know, even though most patients who have SBP, if we checked blood cultures at the same same time that we did the paracentesis, you know, most aren't going to have positive blood cultures. But if you look for the the fingerprint of the bacteria having been in the blood by looking at bacterial DNA, you very commonly see it in the bloodstream of patients who have SBP. And so I, I think the leading sense now for the sequence of events is bacterial overgrowth, increased permeability leading to translocation to the mesenteric lymph nodes, bacteremia, even if we don't pick it up, and then the bacteremia see ultimately seeding the ascites leading to SBP. William of Ockham is not pleased. No, not at all. <laughs> He's like, just give me a leaky gut. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that, like, now that I think about it, I can think of so many situations in which the bowel wall is inflamed or or weakened in which you don't really get SBP. You know, like in Crohn's disease, for example, like you, you don't typically see SBP as like a cardinal feature of the disease or like graft versus host, but uh, and, I know I just had really settled on that Occam version. And, and I'll tell you, that we'll get to this a little bit later, but this is a multifactorial process. So even you know, just having one of them is not enough, right? Small bacterial, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, those patients don't get SPP if they have ascites. So you, you, you kind of have to have a lot of these you know, risk factors all together. So, so your list of three things was intestinal bacterial overgrowth, increased intestinal permeability, and then altered immunity, which I think... So where does the altered immunity come in? Yeah, I mean, I think we could spend an entire episode talking about why cirrhosis leads to uh, altered immunity. And so um, I'll, I'll make this brief. Maybe at some point in the future, we'll, we'll talk about it. But I'll give one example. And it's that um, patients with cirrhosis have diminished activity, diminished function of the reticuloendothelial system, particularly the Kupfer cells, which are the sort of monocyte macrophages of the liver. And the reticuloendothelial system plays an enormous role in the clearance of gram-negative rods from the blood. And the gram-negative rods are the key cause of SBP. Um, so you know, one study, unsurprisingly, um, looked at 41 patients with cirrhosis, and it was the patients who had 
reduced function of the reticular endothelial system, those were the patients that had increased risk of bacteremia. The immunity issue, again, is multifactorial, but that's just one example where um, it sort of predisposes to this condition. This episode is sponsored by Audible. In addition to great content, like The Curious Clinicians, Audible has thousands of podcasts from popular favorites to exclusive new series, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy, and exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio. Audible lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one easy-to-use app. You'll find voices that motivate to spark you to take action, personalities that encourage and enlighten so that you'll have a partner on your journey. I really enjoyed listening to one of the Audible titles um, that I found on there. Actually, that was recommended by my wife. It was called Quiet by Susan Cain. And I really enjoyed that audiobook. I felt like it helped me understand myself um, a little bit better as someone who's sort of an extroverted introvert. Um, highly recommend the listening experience on Audible. And one of the things I love is that I own the titles I select on Audible. This allows me to come back to them whenever I choose to. And one book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, is a fascinating review of the evolution of morality. And it's one of these examples of a, of a title that I just come back to over and over and over again. Another title I love to revisit is the entire uh, Sherlock Holmes series, read by the remarkable Stephen Fry. The title includes more than 60 hours of Holmes mysteries. It is absolutely fantastic having this at my fingertips anytime I'm in the mood. Audible members can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. With the app, you can listen anywhere as it's all in one place, which is great if you're on the go or just relaxing at home or stranded on a road trip and in need of 60 hours of Sherlock Holmes content if you're, if you're Tony. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days using our own Curious Clinicians code. Visit audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500. That's audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, so, so you mentioned GNRs or gram-negative rods, and one of the like things that strikes me as odd about SBP and the way that we empirically cover SBP is that we don't use what is typically this podcast's favorite <laughs> antibiotic, metronidazole, to cover anaerobes. We don't normally empirically cover anaerobes in SBP, and that is pretty different from like a typical intra-abdominal GI cholangitis or diverticulitis coverage where we would usually use metronidazole in order to cover anaerobes. So why no anaerobic coverage? Do the anaerobes not translocate as well or? They don't appear to translocate that well. That's right. And this is based on studies where they again looked at the mesenteric lymph nodes and the amount of uh, obligate anaerobes that they find in these mesenteric lymph nodes is just minuscule compared to the gram-negative rods or the facultative anaerobes. Now, why that is, is I think a little bit less clear. If you look back a few decades, the leading hypothesis for why anaerobes didn't cause SBP was that the oxygen tension within the ascites was too high. And so, fat, you know, obligate anaerobes just couldn't thrive. But if you can't find them in the mesenteric lymph nodes, it can't simply be the environment of the ascites. 
And so when you look at the papers that sort of make comment on the lack of anaerobes in SBP and in the mesenteric lymph nodes, they talk about the oxygen tension maybe being higher in the lymph nodes compared to the the bowel lumen. But I'll be honest, I don't know that it's clear. It, it, it's it's definitely an empiric observation, but the mechanism, I'll be honest, I'm not sure has been settled. And you know, one thing that comes to mind for me is that the time that we sort of prophylax for SBP is during GI bleeding during cirrhosis. But it seems like anything that could cause bacteremia could cause SBP based on sort of what you're you're saying. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect observation. And I think this is one of the places where understanding the fuller mechanism is valuable. Because if, if we recognize that bacteremia, even if we don't see it on blood cultures, if we recognize that it's part of the process that can ultimately seed the ascites, then we have to recognize that other infections that can cause transient bacteremia, whether it's a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, cellulitis, pharyngitis, those two can cause SBP in a patient with cirrhosis. And so we have to be really, really cautious about you know, patient who's got cirrhosis, who's got ascites, who has one of these other infections, you know, saying, is it possible that we have a gram negative in the acidic fluid, even if they don't have bacteria that we have identified? So I, I think that's a really, really important point. You know, I'll make my one other point before we wrap up. Um, and we alluded to this earlier, you know, Hannah was talking about like Crohn's disease and other things that lead to like friable mucosa. And it's this idea that SBP really is a condition of cirrhosis. I'll often see residents use the you know 250 PMNs. They'll be like, oh, this patient, we ruled out SBP, we ruled in SBP, and they'll apply it to patients who have conditions other than cirrhosis leading to ascites. And the reality is you kind of need this like perfect storm of underlying conditions, the bacterial overgrowth, the increase in permeability, ultraimmunity. You kind of need all of it to get SBP. You know, there have been case reports of SBP in patients with non-serotic portal hypertension, malignant ascites, cardiac ascites, but they're, I'll be honest, they're really rare. The only other condition that seems to have a fairly high frequency of this is nephrotic syndrome, but really only in children. You don't see it much in adults. I've never seen SBP in an adult with nephrotic syndrome, and I've, I've seen a bunch of cases. So this really, I think the other take-home point is that this is a key, this is a condition of um, patients with cirrhosis. And this is, I think, also, like you said, one of the main reasons that a patient with cirrhosis who has recurrent ascites and requires paracentesis weekly, can't just have a drain. Even, you know, yeah. like you'd love to That's just be able to, to do that. But they, they altered immunity and the risk for seeding, they'll just get infected. Absolutely. And we didn't talk about it, but you know, in, the, in that idea of altered immunity, I mean, the ascetic fluid itself has a low amount of uh, important opsonins and Compliment. other- things that are apparently important for immunity. So it's really it really is like lots of different hits that lead to SBP. Yeah, my other sort of like, oh, I've got to bookmark this mentally to look into later is like how this how this relates to the increased risk of SBP and bleeding or the way that we cover SBP yeah. um, in someone who's having upper GI bleed. Right, because that, that's what you mentioned, Avi. Right, uh, patients with upper GI bleed. We we that's a that's a strong indication for prophylaxis. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Tony, do you have take home points for us? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, the first is bacterial overgrowth uh, exists in cirrhosis. 
and increased intestinal intestinal permeability exists in cirrhosis, and those two things are risk factors for SPP. The bacteria do, in fact, translocate, but they probably don't go all the way from the gut lumen into the ascites. They probably uh, use these mesenteric lymph nodes as a first-step intermediary, followed by the bloodstream. And third, you know, because cirrhosis itself is a contributor to all these sorts of risk factors for SBP, having that as an underlying condition is far and away the most common presentation you'll see. SBP and other conditions is far, far, far rarer. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tony. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. As always, thank you for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Curious Clinicians.